Welcome to User Stories, a WB Technology podcast about books and reading. Here is your host, Patrick Scott. Today in the chair across from me, we have Leanne Farrelly. Hi. Hi. Leanne, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Leanne is the Learning and Development Director within our Human Resources Group. Leanne, welcome to User Stories. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tell us a little about what you do. What does the Director of Learning and Development for Human Resources do on a daily basis? It can be a lot of different things, actually. But (laughs) essentially, my role is to support the organization with their learning and development. Mm -hmm. And so really, it's about ensuring that people, teams, and ultimately the organization can perform at their best. So their most effective and their most um, capable and confident self. Is that sort of putting together development programs or, or curriculum on things? Yes. So things like organize, sort of instructional design. Mm-hmm. So, so the, some of the programs you see in the WB Learning yes. proposition, mm-hmm. we would design and deliver those and facilitate those. We would do things like help our executive leaders develop leadership offsites. Mm-hmm. We can do team effectiveness. If there's an issue in a team, we're often brought in to try and analyze what the problem is, find a good solution. We deliver the solution, and then we just make sure that things tick along nicely. Right. So anything that's around um, human behavior, mm-hmm. and we use sort of psychology and different tools and resources to try and help people perform at their best. Very interesting. This is a podcast about books and reading. Uh, We have something of a special episode today because we're going to talk both about your background as a reader, but then I think we're also going to talk about something that is maybe a little more immediate, direct to people's experience here at Warner Brothers, which is a book that our executive team here within technology has been reading recently. So this will be good. This will be something of a hybrid episode, but Mm. let's jump in with you. You've got this great list of books here. When did you become a reader? Apparently very young. (laughs) (laughs) I could read before I went to school. I remember that because my mum very proudly states that. And anything and everything, really. Really, Um, I was just listening to... Kim yeah. and I was it really resonated with me oh, when really? she's like yeah. I read everything it's like yes that is me um <laughs> I was reading newspapers magazines anything I could just get my hands on um my mom tells this really funny story that she used to take me around in the supermarket in my little trolley in my little seat mm-hmm. she'd give me a read it yourself book which oh, cool. w- it might be just a British thing mm-hmm. but it was kind of a very sort of short fairy tale sort of maybe a couple of sentences a page and by the time she got got to the checkout, I was done. Yeah. So she had to put the book back it's and, the, and get another yeah. one. <laughs> it's the analog equi- equivalent of giving your kid your iPhone, right? The right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, boom, done. Give me another one. <laughs> I'm good. So yeah, always being a fairly sort of avid reader. Oh, good. So your list here, you start off with something of a generic bucket. Very broad. <laughs> yeah, but it, I love it. I love the idea of, of describing it this way. Uh, you said your first uh, group of books was the classics, right? Yeah. So I think I read a lot, always been a very avid reader. And then about, I think I was probably about 11 or 12, actually, now I think about where I was in school. And an English teacher, and we had English literature as a class, and he said, you really need to start reading the classics. <laughs> and it was just like the classics. And I you know, needed more explanation for what that was. Um, and he described to me the books that had kind of stood the test of time. Mm-hmm. They're seen as literary masterpieces, mm-hmm. and they really are quite special. So yeah. I went home, told my mom, and she went and got this huge, 
huge sort of deck of blue leather-bound books yes, that I just remember so vividly. Um, and in there, there was The Three Musketeers, Heidi, Dickens, um, what else was in there? Uh, Black, was, Beauty, yes, Black, Black Beauty. Black Beauty. Um, and I, I understood immediately what he meant because I have a very vivid memory of reading Heidi whilst on holiday in Greece and all those sensual experiences of food and smells mm -hmm. and just I could taste the air that Heidi was breathing in and out and I could taste the food that she was describing and then and Black Beauty it was just it's such an emotional roller coaster. And I think I remember very vividly that first moment of reading a book that was considered a classic mm -hmm. and how it made me feel. Oh, good. And how it made me just it just escape to another world. Yeah. And it was an incredible experience. Yeah, Love I remember that. that so clearly. Black Beauty actually, you you won't know this, but because we haven't released the episode yet, but it actually came up on another recent episode. Oh, yeah, how so funny. The connection to Warner Brothers as well, since we actually made the Black Beauty movie. I um, did not know that. Yeah, back in the day. So that was your gateway drug. That was reading. my gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that brought you on to what you describe here as your favorite novel ever, yes. which is the classic uh, Wuthering Heights by mm -hmm. Emily Bronte. Yes. Not the not other. Charlotte. Not Charlotte. Jane Eyre. And, yes, Jane Eyre and Charlotte. <laughs> Emily is Wuthering Heights. And there was actually another sister, and I can't remember her name. I think it's Anne. Yeah, I do too. So tell me about Wuthering Heights. Well, I read it because I had to for my A-level English literature. Me too. <laughs> I, I, not for A-level. I read it when I was uh, 16 years old, when I was just about to start junior and high school. The same. Okay. The same. So I, again just got swept into this world that was just so and I think at that time when you're 16 and your hormones are just all over the place and then you read this very passionate mm -hmm. um sensual uh, just all kinds of things are happening and it's just the passion is so over the it's almost it's, gothic it's, in a way right well it is yeah. you know you think that was the kind of the gothic horrors were the thing that was the it was that time and mm -hmm. that thing and they you know even people who like biography that the Bronte sisters are like mm -hmm. how could they I mean they were never so a lot of them weren't married and right. like how did they know about this like there had to have been something in their lives right, but right. I think the fact that they didn't know about it was why it was so extreme <laughs> it's almost like yeah okay this is great but real people probably don't do this yes, who knows yeah, yeah. who knows and you're bored in the middle of the Yorkshire countryside maybe you do but yeah it was just such an amazing one just the story itself was just so um, engulfing and encompassing so, and How's your memory for the story? Because I remember very little from my reading 25 years ago almost. I can quote from it still. Okay. <laughs> so I remember this whole thing. My love for Linton is like the trees and the foliage in the woods. Time will change it. I'm well, as, I'm well aware as winter changes the trees. But my love for Heathcliff is like the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible light but necessary. That's good. I just – it I was just – Boom, I, right here in my heart. I want to let everyone know she does not have the book with her. That that was all by memory right Someone's now. Someone's going to be going, is it right? I may have got a few words wrong. Uh, that's great. And I think yeah. that quote kind of summarizes it. It's, yeah. it's something of a, of a love triangle book. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you, I, I think it's so much. It's yes. so many things. I think the storytelling itself, it starts in the middle. Mm -hmm. So 
Pulp Fiction, I'm sorry, that was not an original thing. No, no. It, in media, the, the concept <laughs> of uh, what in literature we call in medias res, right? Okay, I didn't know that, yeah. but that's awesome. It starts with this, you know, this guy wandering the moors. He's trying to find um, Wuthering Heights, the house. Yeah. And then this whole horror story emerges with Kathy outside as a ghost and the whole Kate Bush song <laughs> is coming to life. And then you hear this story going back and this kind of legacy of crazy love triangles that just continue mm -hmm. throughout the book. So their children then engage That's in a love funny. triangle and there's a love triangle with the sister and the brother and they're like, these names become intertwined and it's so incestuous. It's crazy. Yeah, you're you're reminding me now. I tripped over some of the time changes the first time I read the book. That's one of yes. the things I remember is kind of not entirely grokking that, oh, we've switched our, our placement here and this is happening, you know, at a different time period. Yes. Yeah. And all told through the eyes of Nellie, essentially, yeah. who was the housekeeper. And just you know, and you and actually you don't like anyone in the book. I personally don't like a single character. They're all awful. Oh, that's a, interesting. Yeah, it's very rare for people to gravitate towards books where they don't have a fondness for one of the main characters. Yeah, I mean, I empathize with Kathy, mm -hmm. like as in my teenage years, like yes. she was okay. my like, you know, I get her. I know her. <laughs> I feel her. But she's a horrible person. She really is. And I think that is why it's such good storytelling. Interesting. You know, I love stories where the characters are more than just this kind of one-dimensional, mm -hmm. good, bad. Like, it's complicated. Yeah. And every time I read it, I empathize with a different character or I feel sorry for someone else and then I don't and then it just makes you feel all the feels. I and then if that. you spend time, if you ever go to Yorkshire and spend time on the moors, you really get that feeling of little, isolation. A little desolate. Yes. Yeah. That contributed to that storytelling. I, yeah, I think I, I, I've seen enough sort of period piece British drama that occasionally you get a shot out there and, you know, the fog rolling in and like the isolated figure standing on a moor and you, you're like, oh, they look like the most alone person in the world. Right. Yeah. And it feels that way. Yeah. Even with a crowd of people, mm -hmm. you know, we went and actually went to the village that the Brontes grew up in. Um, which is escaping me. The name's escaping me right now. And you feel it. You yeah. went went to the house that was supposedly based on Wuthering Heights. It's just a ruin. The way you're describing is is such a, a vivid connection with the book that it's clearly imprinted itself on, oh, on you. totally. Yeah. yeah. They have that capability, the Bronte sisters. I feel like a lot of people, if you're a big reader and you're, you're a fan of this type of literature, you're kind of the Jane Eyre person, the mm -hmm. Wuthering Heights person, and you've picked your side. Yeah, I love Jane Eyre no, too. No, Jane Eyre, yeah, it's a wonderful novel. Yeah, she, Jane Eyre I found difficult to identify with as a character because mm. I felt like Kathy was a bit more emotive and uh. Jane Eyre's so put collected and put together. She, I, and she's so vivid in my mind. Just as a um, Jane Eyre specifically, as a as a narrator, the voice is so distinct. Yes. It, it's fully formed on the first page and it just never lets up. Your next book, a little more modern. Yes. Uh, and a book that's been sitting on my shelf for a long time and I'm, I'm excited to talk about it because I haven't read it yet but oh. I, I need something to inspire oh, me to read goodness. it. It's Born a Crime by yes. Trevor Noah. 
People know Trevor Noah as the host of The Daily Show. He replaced Jon Stewart. Mm -hmm. uh, but he has this fascinating personal story that he tells in this book. I love Trevor Noah from The Daily Show mm -hmm. and have just, like, he's just so funny. And I think his sense of humor speaks to me. Mm -hmm. just, he's just very good. Uh, because I liked him and I was going through a stage of um, listening to autobiographies, I liked them when they're narrated by the person that wrote them. It's very fun. I, I agree. And memoirs or autobiographies where it's the actual person. Yes. Really great. Because they really, you feel like you, they take you there on their story and mm -hmm. it feels real. So I listened to a few and then Trevor Noah was on my list. I didn't expect what I got. He tells a story. I mean, essentially the book, as it says, Born a Crime, is around the fact that because he had a white dad and a black mother, mm -hmm. he was illegal. His birth yeah. was a crime. Under the apartheid laws Under in, the South, apartheid laws South, in Africa. South Africa. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid listening to sort of that all coming to an end mm -hmm. um, in the UK. It was a big deal. I I'm remember not sure. it as well, yeah. Was it the same in the US? And the Free Nelson Mandela campaign, yeah. like it was everywhere. Yeah. So I, it kind of resonated from my childhood too. But hearing his stories, and here's the thing, there are a series of stories that I, I think I said this in my little note to you, that I don't think in one car journey a story or a book has ever made me laugh out loud hysterically yeah. because his anecdotes are hilarious. Yes, yeah. He's, he's a funny, funny guy. And I imagine his delivery sells it tremendously. It totally. Like, yeah. I try to retell a story and it failed miserably. Like, I just feel like, you know, just listen. I don't even want to try. I will quote Bronte, but I will not try and quote Trevor yeah, Noah. <laughs> and then made me cry. And not in a feel sorry for me, mm -hmm. just in a the world is like that. Yes. Or it was like that. And I doubt it isn't it hasn't and, changed significantly in a lot of parts of the world. And I've, I've seen him interviewed, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think one of the things he said is because of the apartheid laws, his parents couldn't be married. Nope. But they were very much in love. And his mother basically had to pretend to be his dad's house cleaner. Yes. Right? And she would just go by and bring her son with him. And then they would basically have family time at the house while she was pretending to be his house cleaner. It, Wild. I mean, it, the, it's insane. Putting yourself in the in his shoes and in, in that and trying to navigate that concept of a family growing yes. up. Just wild to me. And, you know, he, I don't want to ruin the story, mm -hmm. but there's some pretty intense moments in this mm -hmm. book of real violence, mm -hmm. real challenge, real struggle, faith. Um, his mother is an amazing character. And mm -hmm. even though she's not written as a character and he talks about her, you really get this sense of this strong, sort of determined woman. Um, the love story between his mom and dad doesn't actually come through that oh, interesting. that loudly in this in the in for maybe, me it didn't say. Maybe I overinterpreted based on the, the interview he gave. But, but that certainly is true. Like he she would visit. I mean she remarries and okay. she has other children. He's got a bigger family and that in itself is a story and I, I mean, it's just he has to tell his story but what I would say is that everything you get in the Daily Show and more yeah. um, that depth and that sort of um, a pathos that I think I think as Brits love he definitely tells those stories with a way that just and I'm genuinely saying tears yes. and laughter no I, I believe it I think uh, he's obviously proven himself on the Daily Show inheriting what I thought was a, a pretty mountain. hard gig I mean yeah. if you think about what John Stewart did in our culture for about 10 15 years to sort of try and take over that mantle as, as a relative unknown I thought was very mm -hmm. impressive in and of itself I've seen him they've started to release these things where he kind of talks to the audience during taping the between scenes yeah the between scenes and it convinced me that there's even more there than I even appreciated because he'll talk 
kind of about subject matter in the news and he'll give his take on it in a very unscripted way. And I'm so impressed by his ability to both provide an insightful and extremely nuanced take on things while also punctuating it with this kind of ad hoc humor. The one I saw that really stood out to me was he recently spoke about the Liam Neeson thing where Liam Neeson made some comments about race and about wanting to have the, having like a, a revenge fantasy. I don't know if you remember this a few months ago. Yeah. And his take on it was so smart as far as doing the, the thing I think not enough people do in our culture right now, which is trying to put his, himself in the shoes of the person, trying to understand their thought process, and then quickly deconstructing and explaining all the things that were wrong with that thought process mm-hmm. uh, and providing a really, what I thought was a, a constructive criticism, not a, I'm just going to drag him, use, use mm-hmm. my public space to drag him. And I was like, oh, there's so much impressive intelligence there. Yeah, he strikes me as one of those people that whatever he chose to do in life, he would have rocked yeah, it. Yeah. And his journey isn't necessarily straightforward. I mean, right. he was a DJ for a while with a dance crew mm-hmm. and like he didn't have, I mean, talk about not coming from privileged background. I mean, he he really did have to work and work and work and work. Yeah, and um, if, I mean, being succeeding as a stand-up, you know, in your native country is one thing. Moving, you know, across the world and, and doing it here, it's wild. Absolutely. Yeah. And he is an incredibly intelligent person yeah, yeah. that is just... As I say, I feel like anything he set his mind to, I think he would have achieved. Mm-hmm. But I love exactly what you've just described yeah. and what he does. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, one last set of books before we get on to the other section of this discussion. This is a, a series that you describe as your guilty p- passion. <laughs> uh, your guilty pleasure. <laughs> guilty Sorry. Pleasure. <laughs> guilty passion. It's a series of books by Diana Gabaldon. Gabaldon, yeah. Gabaldon. The Outlander series. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love these books so Do bad. You? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I love the TV series too. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm only familiar with the TV series. Oh I, right, I, okay. Uh, and I haven't seen it. I just kind of I've seen enough ads to kind of get the sense that it's Scottish Highlands, but there's also time travel and yeah. a very heavy romantic component. Yes, yes. Sci-fi meets historical fiction. Yes. I watched the TV series, and I was late to the TV series. And someone said, "You're going to love it. You're going to love it." And and I did. I watched it, and I loved it. I thought it was actually surprisingly good. Yeah. Like the script was very good. The acting is actually phenomenal. It covers some very difficult stuff, Mm -hmm. which you wouldn't expect. Okay, interesting. But she does not shy away from the brutality of what that kind of 16th century Scotland would have looked like and what would have happened to people. Mm -hmm. And then some. Right. So you have a stellar cast. You have these beautiful backdrop of Scotland. I I will say, yeah, that's the one thing that comes through on the ads is this this show looks beautiful. It is beautiful. And um, it's just very well done. Better than I expected. I was expecting to tune in to some kind of rom-com that I would have just, (laughs) you know, passively enjoyed. And then I got sucked in. So I went to the books, which happens a lot. So the TV brought you to the The books. TV brought me to the books. I'm one of those people where the TV brings me to the books, the books brings me to the TV, yeah. and I appreciate what it looks like in its particular genre or art form. Mm-hmm. It's an interpretation. Sure. I don't expect it to be exactly the same. There are some things that I get a little like hung up on. No, but I'm, I'm currently dealing with this, what you're describing in a, in a more tense way with the Game of Thrones stuff where the show is ending currently and I'm struggling with how, what I think about it as television as opposed to an adaptation of books and I don't know. It's it's a whole thing right now. It is really tough. I'm, I'm in the same place yeah. as you, by the way, with Game of Thrones because the books are so different and I'm like, I just want his books to come out now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, and then she's written so many novels now. I think in the TV series, I mean, I'm 
she's the novels are way past the TV series in a similar way. I think there's eight books now, oh, I know and that there's all these novellas and spin-off characters. Oh, so she's chari- created a full universe. Oh, a full universe, and her characters are so good and so real mm. that you want to read the novellas. They're like, oh, I want more about this guy. <laughs> like, what happened there? And that's interesting. But yeah, I call it my guilty pleasure because I think on the surface of it, a lot of people would look at it in the same way I did initially. Like, mm-hmm. this is sort of nice passive romantic. Television. Yeah, and I think it, I think in a disinterested or maybe not that curious person might just easily catalog it as like chick lit or yeah, something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you watch it. And my husband was behind me because I was watching it when I was in the UK on the train. And um I said, You've got to watch this show because you're gonna love it. And then he watched I won't give it away, but a specific episode, and he was like, I had to stop it. Like <laughs> That was one of the most horrific things I've ever oh, seen wow. in my life. Like, that was horrible. Anyone who's seen the show will probably know what I'm referring to. I remember this. It, I, I don't know what happened, but I remember there was a, a moment where people were talking about the show veering off into something pretty graphic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I don't think it veers, actually. Yeah. I wish I could say it out loud without ruining it for people. <laughs> I think it is a scene that we have seen many, many times, but the gender was different, okay. and I will leave it there. Oh, interesting. Which interesting. creates a whole other and, dialogue. And I should say the other thing is, a lot of times we accept things much more passively if we're not invested in the characters in a rich sense. And yes. suddenly if it's a real character who you've invested and spent a lot of time with, things that you took for granted a while ago seem much much more aggressive, much more um, real. Mm-hmm. She does it so well. Okay. And if you keep watching as well, those characters, again, they're not one-dimensional. Okay. They're good, they're bad. So this sounds like a blanket recommendation for both the series, Absolutely. Uh, the TV series and the books. I think they're good accompaniments. Okay, I good. think it's a good discussion. I like the discussion between oh, it's like this in the book, but it's like this in the TV yeah. show. I quite like that dialogue. It's interesting. Well, we live in this moment, actually, where you know it's, uh, it's been discussed with the, this final season of Game of Thrones, how much secondary content gets created off the back of Game of Thrones. Like, yes. Uh, like the number of websites that do 10 or 20 posts a week based oh on a single episode of Game of Thrones. I mean, you literally couldn't, you could do nothing but read surrounding content and yep. you wouldn't be able to get through it all. No, with all these theories that are emerging. Oh, yeah. And some some people are good and some it's just like, really? Yeah, but, <laughs> but to me it points to just a general appetite for people to not just you know read the book or watch the show, but also to have this sort of secondary conversation. And one of the one of the vectors of that conversation is often if you have two different versions of the story, how they comment or or change. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so interesting. I think it and this is why I love storytelling, yeah. is because I could read Wuthering Heights, you could read Wuthering mm-hmm. Heights. They're the same words on a page. Yes. But the experience that you have is very different to the experience I have and so on and so forth. And I think when you get excited is when you find that common ground of like I felt that I felt that too and what's even more interesting is when you don't and you're like Mm. but why and Mm. what was that about and how did that come about and I think that where it kind of ties into my kind of world of psychology is why I'm so fascinated in character character development and how you can tell the same story but have totally different perspectives and views. It's just brilliant. I want to transition now to the other part of this conversation, which is another book, but it's a book that's a little bit more specific to some of the work we're doing here at the studio. Mm -hmm. At a recent uh, town hall for the technology organization, Vicki Kolf, our CTO, mentioned that she had asked the executives in her organization to read a book by Brene Brown. 
uh, book was called Dare to Lead. I want to talk a little bit about this, and let's talk in a very generalized manner just mm-hmm. to start. Brene Brown's having something of a moment right now. Wow. I know. It's kind of wild. The timing is is amazing. It, it, it really is. For, for people who don't know, if you have driven down Wilshire in the last couple of <laughs> weeks, you've probably seen at the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax an enormous billboard with Brene Brown's picture on it. She just had a an hour-long special released on Netflix mm-hmm. uh, where she gives I, what seems like I, I only had a chance to start it, but it seems like the kind of the ultimate summation of a lot of the work she's been doing over the last decade in a presentation form, I guess mm-hmm. is what I would say. And so she's got this Netflix special. She's been popping up in a lot of different places. I've, I've you know, I've seen her appearing on podcasts, one of which I shared with you. And then uh, she has this book, which I think is starting to circulate in organizations uh, all over the place. How did uh, you decide, and it sounds like you decided with Vicky to bring this book into the organization. How does something like that happen? Well, it's interesting because um, I've been a bit of a fangirl of Brené Brown for much longer than oh, she's really? been around and hit the scene. So I was introduced to her by my colleague, Sarah Haddon. Okay. She added to a course that I designed called Executive Presence. Mm-hmm. And in that course, anyone who's done it will know we talk about influencing and the different ways that you can Mm -hmm. influence. And one of the models that I'd started to develop was whether you use your head or whether you use your heart Mm -hmm. when you're trying to make an argument. And both have credible um, uses in different contexts and situations. But the one bit that is very difficult to talk about in a corporate environment is heart. Mm -hmm. People tend to sort of have a reaction to that. They don't necessarily get it or want to get it or see it as being a part of professional the professional world, which I'm sure we'll delve in and out of as we have this No, it's, it's absolutely true. And I, after consuming all of this content, she's got TED Talks and all these other mm-hmm. things. Even I still sort of index very strongly as professionalism being this sort of antiseptic, very non-human behavior. Yeah, a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And I think I don't think professional and personal are two distinct concepts. Mm-hmm. I think that if they are, then if you're coming to work with just some kind of professional persona, you are either exhausted mm-hmm. or in, are very unhappy mm-hmm. because you're in work five days of seven. Yeah. Um, you spend more time probably with the person sitting next to you than your own partner. Yeah. I think that if you can't bring your whole self to work, and then that would be a shame. Yes. <laughs> and also pretty sort of demotivating and de-energizing. Yeah, and I think most people, you probably will meet someone in your life who can compartmentalize to that degree. Mm-hmm. But I think for most people, it's not something they want to do. It's not something they feel healthy when they do. It's not a natural way of, of going out into the world. No, and I think, look, we all have a different way we show up with different groups of people. Mm-hmm. I have different groups of friends, my uni friends. I'm slightly different to the friends I've made here in the US. And mm-hmm. that's not necessarily deliberate. That's just informed by who I'm with, the context, the mm-hmm. way they know me, the experiences they have of me. Yeah. And it's the same with work. You know, I'm not suggesting that we all just be exactly the same in any given situation mm-hmm. because that would be weird. Mm-hmm. No, no, <laughs> it's, it's just true. but it's I see work as the same thing. It's a different group of people. It's a different context and there are different things that I will choose mm-hmm. to share and, and to be part of and it is all personal choice. Yeah, you, you I think one way you put a different prism for the world to see you, but it's still reflecting an accurate version of, of your whole self. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think when it gets a little shifted is when you try to remove that from the workplace. Right. right. Because 
because you need that in the workplace. So when we were talking about influencing and using heart, there was a TED Talk that Brené Brown had done, mm -hmm. I think maybe as far back as 2009, but I'd have to check that. I think, yeah, I, I was looking at it this morning. I think they were, yeah, 2010, 2011 maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe later. And we included it in the content of Executive Presence because she talks about courage and heart and courage being the heart story, mm -hmm. which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. And how... She, yeah, as my, as an English, former English person, I love the etymology of even talking about how courage comes, the root of courage is heart. Yes, yeah. your heart story. Mm -hmm. And and that's what we were talking about. When you're influencing with heart, you're sharing your heart story. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing more compelling, especially in leadership, mm -hmm. to hear someone's heart story. Yes, I Not agree. their thought of, thought, thought process is important. I'm not saying it isn't. But if you're trying to influence people to do something or to act or behave differently, you need to have a compelling influencing concept. It has to be real. Yeah. That's the important thing. It can't be fake because mm -hmm. people can tell. Yes. So it was a great piece of content that Sarah brought into that class that just really elevated people in the class responded so well to it. Well, I think it's not exclusive to the class, right? It's been no. one of the most popular TED Talks Absolutely. there is. Absolutely. And and it did propel Brene Brown into mm. um, into stardom. And actually, she will talk about this quite openly, an absolute total emotional black, um, <laughs> breakdown. Yeah, it's so funny. So a psychological breakdown, yeah. which I thought was super interesting. Which her, and, and she says her therapist rebranded for her as a spiritual awakening. Yes, yeah. which she hates. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, when in talk, so I'm not even sure who first brought up Brene, whether it was me or Vicky. Okay. I'm not even entirely sure where that came from. I think Vicky was already bought in, but Dare to Lead came out. I can't remember. But okay. what generally happens when we think about who we're going to use and what tools and methods in what we do, it starts with what's the problem we're trying to solve mm -hmm. for. So if an executive has an issue with their organization or not even necessarily an issue, but a direction they want to lead mm -hmm. into, then what we would do is think about what's the most appropriate method, thought leadership, tool, concept or process that's going to get us there. Right. And Brené, as you say, is having a bit of a moment. Yeah. We didn't know she was going to have this moment. No, it's, it, I, it's funny. But I, it's just all naturally happened. Yeah, it's, I, it, it's felt like kismet because I, we first talked about this a few months ago. And since then, I'd never heard of Brene Brown. And since then, she's just been in all of these different media that I consume, she's been popping up. Yeah, it's, and it's it's bizarre. Mm -hmm. And she's actually coming to the studio on June 4th. Very exciting. Which is incredibly exciting. But I mean, in answer to your question, it's, you know, for Brene, what I found when as a as a practitioner, when I, when I heard Brene Brown talk, is that she brings the scientific process and the depth of data mm -hmm. to concepts and theories that have existed for a long time that we've known intuitively be tr to be true. I, I, that's one of the things that stood out to me. A lot of the words she's using, her core concepts, mm -hmm. are concepts that children are familiar with. Absolutely. Right? A kid understands what courage is. They understand what vulnerability is. It's not a very cerebral thing. No, it's not. And it's based on the experiences of thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of interviews and research. And I think in those moments where you have a thought leader emerge in that way, it kind of I liken it to Daniel Goleman and emotional intelligence and David Rock and neuroscience like mm -hmm. those moments in certainly in my profession where something comes to the table that is very based and rooted in scientific research and data that proves out what 
from my profession, we know from observation and experience. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you can then lend and borrow from those different concepts to be able to help an organization understand the why. Mm -hmm. Like if we're going to do this, why should I be courageous? Like explain that to me because that feels like a very nebula concept. Yeah, and let's talk about the blocking and tackling of it. You and Vicky come up with this uh, plan together and it turns out that this book is maybe going to be the good vehicle for how you begin to explore these concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, it's shared with uh, the executive team at, uh, here at Technology. Warner Technology is a, a sizable organization, over 500 people now, I mm -hmm. believe. How do you go about bringing these concepts? And like I said, these are, are basic, but they're also extremely personal concepts. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability and shame mm -hmm. uh, being a couple of the, the words that come up in her books a lot. How do you bring them into an organization and begin to uh, affect change based on um, these principles? Well, I think the first thing is, is to understand, you know, why it's important mm -hmm. um, and to get that message out there, to right. spark the curiosity. And thankfully, the whole world's doing that for us to yes, some degree, yeah. which is great. Well, it is, but I think we're, you've also taken some steps. We recently augmented our operating guidelines mm -hmm. to reiterate yeah. this point of view. Be courageous. Be courageous, our newest operating guideline. Mm -hmm. I mean, what she says is that she conducted interview with many, many leaders and said, what is the thing that needs to happen for mm -hmm. us to survive in the industry as it is today? Right. And they said it was essentially there's a few things, but courage was the, to be courageous, to be able to make those decisions, to take those risks, mm -hmm. to have those difficult conversations. Like if leaders don't learn to do this, mm -hmm. then we will fail. Mm -hmm. And what she then says is you can't have courage without vulnerability. Right. And it's really interesting because I don't think I had ever thought of it in that way before. I certainly hadn't. Intuitively, it makes sense. The second you, it doesn't take a lot to convince me once I read it. Mm -hmm. um, but the framing that she's used is novel, I think. Yes. I think the story she shares in the book is she asks, um, she goes to speak at, um, she works quite closely with the military, and mm -hmm. she asks them, probably the most courageous people that mm -hmm. we know in, the, in our country, have you ever had an act of courage without vulnerability? Mm -hmm. And not one single person could name a single act of courage that did not require a level of vulnerability. Yeah. And I think you had mentioned, like, how can we make this safe? Yeah. And the answer is we can't. Right, yeah. That's just the point. It, it begs the question, yeah. It, um, it feels difficult. Mm -hmm. It feels challenging. Mm -hmm. And it is personal. And that's the point. And if we don't bring that to our working world and our working environment, it doesn't enable us to be good leaders and mm -hmm. to move forward. And when I say leaders, I don't just mean the people that sit at the top of the organization. I mean the people in the whole organization mm -hmm. that show leadership every single day yep. in whatever capacity they do, in whatever they do. So whether you're doing this in work or outside of work, mm -hmm. you know, she has many applications of her of her concepts and theories. You know, it, it is difficult. And she says, you know, if you're going into this and you're expecting it to all come out wonderful and you're not going to get bruised and battered, mm -hmm. then you're going to be disappointed. She seems to acknowledge in the book and in other places there's risks associated with this. Yeah. And I think one of the ways she argues that you can mitigate the risks is by uh, taking a hard look at the way you approach these things 
and employing uh, what she calls empathy, which yes. I think is a re- the, the way she set up this sort of dichotomy between courage and vulnerability and then using empathy to, to bridge the gap. I was very interested in it. She talks about empathy skills. How do we bring these into the organization? Wow. So, yes. Yeah, so, in answer, also answering your yeah. other question. So, I mean, there's a lot here about awareness and just understanding yes. what these concepts yeah, yeah. are. There's a lot about, I'd say, read the book, do a TED Talks, mm-hmm. listen to the audio book if the book itself is too, because sometimes these books can be a bit difficult to... You could even appear in a podcast. Yeah, appear in a podcast, <laughs> whatever that looks like. Um, so, get your head around the ideas. I'd also say, look, you know, this isn't for everybody. Like, mm-hmm. if you read this and it doesn't resonate with you, that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. I think what... The, but the intention is still there, to be courageous, to be more driven and make those mm-hmm. sort of decisions. So lots of education and training is coming. Yes. We are still in the process of defining what that looks like, but we will be reaching everybody in some way, shape or form across the tech organization. There will be a course for you around this subject and this topic. It, it seems like an organizational imperative. Yes. At this point. Yeah. There will be tools, resources, things you can access via the WBT intranet. Mm-hmm. We're excited. I don't want to give the game away because I could get in trouble with Jason no, and Katie, no. oh, but there's so many that. things that are we are planning to try and not only lift the OG, mm-hmm. but also just to keep this the organization moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we started with Vicky and her leadership team because we knew that was the best place to start. Mm-hmm. And in that is what I'd encourage people to do is just be curious, be right. open-minded, mm-hmm. like think about this, think about the parts that speak to you, think about the parts that don't and right. why that might be. You know, I wouldn't, for there'll be other thought leaders in this space that we explore as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Brené is just someone who just seems to have captured the hearts and minds, certainly of me as a practitioner <laughs> and of other people in the organization. I, I, I think I should say I'm fully bought in. I think the book may not be the vehicle that everyone wants to use to experience her yeah. ideas. I think it's very nice that there are other ways of doing it. I've heard her speak enough now that I'm incredibly impressed by her ability to be sort of extremely candid and be willing to acknowledge her own mistakes or the moments where her own blindness might have, you know, made her feel embarrassed or made mm-hmm. her um, feel vulnerable. You know, she talks mm-hmm. about her own vulnerability a lot. She's got a really winning demeanor in the way she talks about these things. Yeah, she's very compelling. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't feel I answered your question about empathy. No, yeah, we can go back to it. The question was about empathy skills. I'm fascinated by this idea because I think she seems to really place a, a lot of emphasis on the idea that in the midst of these scary conversations where we acknowledge our shame, where we acknowledge our vulnerability, where we try to be courageous, we all know that these are risky things. Uh, mm-hmm. How do we mitigate this risk is, I think it seems like she's arguing that one of the great tools we have that we are born with, mm-hmm. um, that we are naturally inclined to practice, but which we maybe don't, um, we haven't developed in the context of the workspace, mm-hmm. or we don't always know how to deploy, is empathy. And she's specifically, I was really interested in the phrase empathy skills, because it's not something I'd ever thought about before. I never thought about have, uh, uh, having empathy, a set of skills to deploy empathy. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it, it's a nice way of breaking it down in a way that invites that maybe make people more comfortable about engaging it in a space like work that feels very risky. I mean, work is tied to our sense of identity, work is tied mm-hmm. to our ability to make a living. People are are very risk averse. I'm just curious how we develop and deploy things like empathy skills uh, in the workplace. And I think it starts with understanding what empathy is. Yes. Because as you've just articulated, people at work, this is why it 
I always think if people tell me their heart isn't in work, I, I really don't believe them because you've just articulated yeah. why heart is in work. Mm-hmm. People feel very, very passionate about what they do. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot tied to what they do, their mm-hmm. kind of sense of comfort, their sense of well-being, all of those things. I, and I would argue you could, it can happen with almost without your own decision-making process. Absolutely. Yeah, you might say – my work is not who I am. This is just a job. Yeah. But if you're there long enough, uh, you'd be shocked by how much your identity becomes tied to it. Totally. Yeah. Your sense of belonging, your sense of status. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another, that's a David Rock concept. Yeah. But ex- <laughs> um, no, st- status is really important. Yeah, yeah, so important. So the things that are very, very, so when we're in the workplace, a lot, the stakes are high. Mm-hmm. And I think deploying empathy is something that can help you mitigate some of the, I guess, the risks that you might have when you're feeling threatened Mm -hmm. or upset or emotional about something. So what she is encouraging us to do is not to ignore the feelings that we're having because it's important to acknowledge what's happening Mm -hmm. for us and to have boundaries. (laughs) She talks about that very clearly. But to really try and understand what's happening for the other person. And empathy isn't necessarily, oh, um, she describes this so beautifully. She has this analogy. It's a little animation, actually, that I'm sure we'll make available, where she says, you know, people often think of empathy as as somebody in a hole and you're kind of looking over the hole And you're sort of in, and you're in the sunshine. You're sitting on the grass, and you're looking at this person in the hole, and you go, "I'm so sorry. That must suck. Um, <laughs> can I make you a sandwich? Yeah. Let me tell you about the time I was in a hole. Because yeah. we're so uncomfortable with other people's pain and emotion, mm-hmm. we either want to deflect it, or we want to say, "Oh, it's not that bad. Right. Or we want to say, "No, I've had it worse. Yes. I don't know why, but we tend to just not like being in that place. Oh yeah, yeah. And so what she's saying is, just hang on a minute. Stay there with them. Get down in the hole and just feel it with them. Don't try and change it. Don't try and solution it. Just say, this must be awful and I'm here. And do you think this is something people can get better at? Do you think that these are things that people can practice and develop? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think there are ways that you can help control your own reactions to things. Mm -hmm. Things like mindfulness practice can help mitigate what we call an amygdala hijack. So when you're triggered by something, there are things you can do to help, you know, engage your frontal cortex, like your two times tables. That's a very quick tip out there. Oh, interesting. Two times tables. Yeah, two times tables. If you feel an emotional attack coming on or you're feeling pretty angry about something. Well, and yeah, I love the phrase amygdala hijack. Yes. It sounds like my favorite 80s band that didn't exist. (laughs) It does really. <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> I should call you that. Um, it's not my phrase. But yeah. yeah, so that's where the kind of limbic um, part of your brain takes over. Yeah. It says you are in danger. And it doesn't, dis- your brain doesn't distinguish danger from literal danger, like you're going to die to someone's taking my corner office. Yeah. It's yeah, the yeah. same reaction in the brain. Right. So it takes over and it prepares you, it floods your body full of adrenaline mm-hmm. and all these chemicals that says you now need to fight or you need to run, or whatever it is that you need to do. And so that's why when you're in those situations, sometimes it's afterwards you think of all the wonderful things you could have said. I'm sure nobody can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> that is such an ex- a specific experience, but I think everyone's felt it. And it's not it's such a challenging experience because it's you do it to make yourself feel better about the way you responded, but it also in some ways makes you feel worse because it, it's reminding you of what, what you didn't perform in the moment and also makes you feel like you're making excuses for your performance. It's a vicious cycle. It really is. And it's the first step in deploying empathy. Because empathy is a depleting source. 
So if you're feeling like you're not getting enough attention, mm-hmm. it's hard for you to give that to someone else. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're not feeling emotionally stable, it's very difficult to get down in that hole with someone and experience their yeah, emotional it's not a good instability. Time for me. Yeah, which is where it becomes important to know yourself and know your boundaries. And she talks about that, um, not as explicitly as in that in that context, mm. but it's and if you can keep that kind of level head, then that's when you can deploy those empathy skills. And if you're in a situation or a difficult situation and you can think about the other person's point of view, if you can apply a generous interpretation to what they're doing rather than the worst, Mm -hmm. and one of the things, the tricks that I do is at worst, they're being an Mm a-hole. At best, they're having a tough time. Yes. Okay, let me go with this. And that might get me further. <laughs> you know, without without having any of the, the language to describe it, what you're talking about is something I found I often had to do when I would teach high school. Uh, newsflash, 16-year-olds can sometimes be... Really? A-holes. But they're also 16. <laughs> yeah. And you, so you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And you really have to go through that process with yourself because it can be, you know, you're dealing with, I don't know how many students I had as a high school teacher, but five classes with 25 kids. You know, you have over 100 kids who you're responsible for on a on a regular basis. And if more than a couple of them are giving you problems at any given time, it can be quite overwhelming. I can't even imagine. Yeah, it's given me some equipment for living, is what yes. I say. Yeah, The work you have to do to get ready to walk into a school every day to teach, whether you're interested in teaching or not, it is some great job skill training and great life training in general. I think it's a, a thing that everyone should experience at some point, just to try and see if you can do it, and if you can do it for the right reasons, as you say. If you can, not just about improving test scores, but trying to have a positive effect on other people's lives. I'd like to tell you that a room full of executives in their <laughs> 40s and 50s are different, but... <laughs> oh. They are, they are. They are so different, yes. No, um, we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. that uh, that's a great place to end, actually. This has uh, been wonderful. I could talk mm-hmm. about this for much longer, and it sounds like we're going to have an opportunity as an organization to keep talking about this. At this and this is where it starts. Yes. You know, it starts with the conversation. It starts with curiosity. Mm-hmm. What I would say is... Don't dismiss it and don't take it into your heart. Okay. Just stay with it and explore it and talk about it. And then we'll start, I think, seeing sort of things change. Fantastic. Quickly, I just want to remind people, the book that everyone read uh, is called Dare to Lead. The author is Brene Brown. And as you mentioned, she's coming to Warner Brothers. June 4th. June 4th. The release schedule for this podcast can be irregular at times, but we're going to make sure this gets out to the world before then uh, so people have a chance to hear this conversation in preparation. Leanne, this has been wonderful. Thank you for being a guest on user stories. Thank you for having me. It's been great. This has been User Stories. Our thanks to Katie O'Neill and Jason Milner for providing a platform for this podcast and to Lori Perry for creating the logo. Listen to more episodes on the WB Tech intranet or your podcatcher of choice. Thanks for listening.